This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Dave paces back and forth down the hallway of their tiny apartment. After popping the lock on Skylar's bedroom door, he finds her bed empty. Skylar was like every typical teenager. She slept in during the summer break, and July 6th was no different. Mary tries to soothe her husband's fears as they pop in one at a time, until Mary answers the ringing phone and hears Skylar's manager asking if everything was okay with Skylar. The 16-year-old missed her shift at her job for the first time since she started working there. Dave's fears have become Mary's, and the two girls who know where Skylar is were at home sleeping soundly in their beds. Their secret was safe thanks to their work. No one would ever know what they did, or would they? Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight, the case of missing Skylar Niece makes waves in the royal community of Star City. The summer ends without her, and when school starts back up, the students at University High have their own suspicions, and Sheila and Rachel are their prime suspects. Investigators are hot on their tails, but with the legality of the justice system, finding out what happened to Skylar may take longer than they had planned. Warning, this episode contains graphic depiction of murder, adult situations, and adult language. If you feel any of this may be too much for you, please skip this episode or have someone listen with you or for you. Good evening, everybody. Tonight, we pick up on Skylar Niece's case where we left off last week. Sheila and Rachel killing Skylar just north of the West Virginia, Pennsylvania border. And then they drag her to just the just the entry line of the wooded area of this clearing. And they cover her with branches and leaves and other debris from the wooded area. They can't dig a shallow grave like they had thought they could. So instead, the next best thing is cover her up. Nobody sees her. We'll, we'll be fine. After they get rid of Skylar's body, then they clean each other up, possibly celebrate. That's speculated. We can't confirm it. And then they get back in the car and they continue their evening of joyriding. On the morning of July 6th, the 2012, Sheila and Rachel, they get home about 6 a.m. that morning. And they climb back into their windows or sneak back into their home. And neither sets of parents are none the wiser. They're asleep before their parents can get up and really see if anything had happened the night before. 
Now that afternoon, Sheila has to drive back out to that desolate spot where Skylar's body now lays. And the reason she's back out that way is because Rachel can't seem to find her cell phone. The last place she remembers having it is when they were out there killing Skylar. So Sheila drives back. Now, if it was me, I lay my cell phone down and I lose that sucker every time I turn around. I'm constantly having somebody call my phone because I can't seem to find it. My teenage daughter, hmm, something else. She can, that's her lifeline. They don't lay it down without remembering where they put it down at. And for Rachel to have lost her cell phone, that's not necessarily out of the realm of possibility. It's just a little weird for a 16-year-old girl. They, like I said, their cell phones are their lifeline. That is how they communicate outside of their home. And to lose that means to lose that little bit of freedom they seem to think that they have with it. Nevertheless, Sheila, she drives back out to the area and she starts firing text messages off to Rachel's phone. Now, I would say she probably ignores the pile of branches and leaves where Skylar lays underneath. If she sees it, she's like every other serial killer. What you can't see, not serial killer. She's like every other psychopath. I mean, you look at it and you don't connect to the fact that it's more than just a pile of debris from the wooded area. It, there's a body underneath giving it its weight. Sheila looks over and I, she, you know, I'm just speculating here. This is not confirmed. But I, I would venture to say that she probably doesn't connect anything with it other than that's a bunch of branches and leaves and mud and moss or whatever else they used to cover her up with. Now, as she's firing off these text messages to Rachel's phone, she finds it just in the grass, just inside the grass of where this little clearing is. Now, remember, this was the girl's one-time favorite spot to go and smoke pot at. So, if you pull this spot up on online, there's a little bit of a clearing, but then there's grass that just creeps into that clearing before you reach the front line of the woods. Okay, so the phone was found just inside of that. And Sheila, to go get that phone at some point, would have to stand and cross over the darkly dyed ground. That's where Skylar was stabbed over 50 times by her friends. She lay there bleeding and her blood scarred the earth in that spot. Is it there today? It's not. It's natural ground. So Mother Nature has ran its course to get rid of that ugly spot on her face. But at the time, it's still fresh. And Sheila had to have at least seen it. Now, she makes no claims, even to this day, whether or not she saw that spot and whether or not she reacted to it. But much like this mound of debris, I don't think she associated that with Skylar. I think that once the Sheila had to go back out to that area, she had already disassociated that area from the crime that had happened not 12 hours before. Okay, so Dave has popped the lock on his daughter's room. He came home from lunch um, and he was going to pick Skylar up, have her take him back to work, and then she was going to drive herself to her later shift that night at Wendy's. Now, Skylar 
only had a learner's permit, but her parents allowed her to have these brief moments where she could take herself to work and come back. And it was for many reasons, but the biggest reason is it saved the nieces and gas money. They, the nieces were not part of society, not part of the part of society that doesn't have to worry about whether or not they drive 20 minutes out of their way. They not only have to account for every dollar that they spend, but they have to account for every gallon of gas they use. So for them to allow Skylar to take her learner's permit and drive to Wendy's and drive herself home is a big thing because in the end, it is going to help them out financially. And Skylar knows this, but Skylar is under strict rules. You know, you go to work and you come home. You don't go anywhere else. And Dave has his own way of making sure she sticks to that. Well, he's there. He's on his lunch break. He's trying to get his daughter up out of bed. She's not responding to him knocking or yelling through the door. So he goes and he gets a coat hanger and he pops the lock to the bedroom door. And when he swings it open, there's an unmade bed. That doesn't mean that Skylar didn't sleep in it the night before. Dave knows this. Instead, his questions are, where's my daughter? You know? So he picks up the phone and he calls Mary at work and he asks, where's Skylar? She's not here. And Mary's like, what are, you, what are you talking about? And Dave said, she's not in her room. And Mary's like, oh, you know, don't worry about it. She probably just went out with a friend to go shopping or something. And Dave's like, no, I had to pop the lock on her bedroom door. And it hits him. He had to pop the lock on her bedroom door, which means Skylar did not leave the apartment through her bedroom door. Well, Dave starts freaking out. He's like, what do you mean? Where's Skylar? You know, and Mary's like, it's okay. You know, telling her husband, you know, don't freak out. But huh, a little too late there, Mary. He was gone. He was flipped out. So Mary's like, let me get somebody to cover me here and I will come home. By the time Mary gets home, Dave has figured out some new information. He had gone out on the balcony where Dave and Mary go out to smoke their cigarettes. And he was standing there and he just happened to turn towards the direction of Skylar's bedroom window. And he sees the bench to Skylar's vanity right there outside her window. And he's like, son of a... She snuck out again, even after we told her not to. So by the time Mary gets home... She's calling Sheila and Rachel and Daniel and everybody that she can think of that Skylar is friends with and asking, have they seen Skylar? And nobody's seen her. Mary still, at this point, is not freaking out. Dave, long gone. He's a dad on the edge. Okay, well, like I said, Mary's calm, cool, collected. She's like, she's around here somewhere. Quit freaking out. Then the phone rings. And when Mary answers the phone, it's Skylar's manager from Wendy's. He's calling to check on Skylar because Skylar did not make it to her shift. And this is what sends Mary into a tailspin of panic. She hangs up the phone and she's telling Dave, you know, call 911 now. But before they can call 911, Sheila is calling Mary back. And Sheila tells Mary, quote, I need to tell you the whole truth about what happened last night. End quote. Okay, so here we are, right? We know what happened last night. We are in the hindsight of things. We get to look back and we get to say, 
we know who did this. I'm not going to give you a whodunit and not tell you who did it, you know. So we know what the truth is. But are any of us naive enough to think that she's going to tell the truth? No, she's not. Basically, what she tells Mary is that Skylar had snuck out and got in the car with Sheila and Rachel and they joyrided around the night before. And then Sheila brought Skylar home about 11.45, 11.30, that night. Well, Mary scolds her. She's like, you know, if we told y'all to quit this sneaking out bull. If y'all wanted to go out and hang out, all you had to do was come to us and talk to us, and we could have worked something out. And she was like every other 16-year-old girl who's getting chastised. I know, I'm sorry, you know. Once Sheila tells Mary the lie, lie number one, about what happened the night before, she begins to question Mary. What's going on? Where, where's Skylar? Why are you asking us where Skylar is? And Mary tells her, Skylar's missing. And it and I'm unclear of whether or not she told Sheila exactly or if Sheila's mother Tara had gotten on the phone and Mary had talked to Tara about it. It doesn't matter. Either way, Sheila and Tara show up at the niece's house and Dave has already called 911. So Tara, Sheila, and Mary, they head out into the neighborhood. Okay. They are going to knock on every single door, one door at a time. And hope that somebody saw what happened to Skylar. So they head out into the neighborhood. And then when Star City Police show up to respond to the 911 call, Dave and the police officer, they go up the other side of the neighborhood and do the same thing. It isn't long before all five of them are heading back to the apartment complex where the nieces live. And it's on their way back that Mary and Dave both remember the complex has security footage. There's security cameras up. And, hey, conveniently, the security camera footage where everything is being recorded, that closet, that room, is right next to our apartment. So, Dave and Mary, they get with the landlord and they catch him up on what's going on and they ask if they can see the footage. Before long, these six people are crammed into this tiny room and they're watching the security footage from July 5th, that night, from about 10 a.m. Okay, now, remember Sheila's story. Sheila picked up Skylar about 11 o'clock that night. And she returned Skylar about 11.45 that evening. So, they are watching this security footage. Slowly, but they're watching it. And at 12.31 a.m., the morning of July 6th, there's Skylar. She pops up. Now, this is not your iPhone 12 quality, but video footage. This isn't even iPhone 5 quality video footage. This is shoddy security cameras with shoddy megapixels. And it's lit up by night vision, which means there's this bright glow around the light. But wherever the light fades, so does the vision field fade. But nevertheless, you see Skylar run across. She runs in front of that camera and she runs out to the parking lot where a light color four-door sedan is waiting for her with its headlights on. 
Now, you can ask this question. Everybody else did. Why did Tara not realize that the car they're staring at, the car that Skylar climbs into the back seat of, why didn't she know that was Sheila's car? Well, chalk it up to crappy security footage. I don't know. I don't know why you don't recognize that. And maybe, maybe it's that you don't want to see what you're seeing. That's also a possibility. Do you want to think that your kid was lying? Do you want to think that your kid knows more about what happened to her best friend? No, of course not. You don't. So they are watching Skylar climb into the backseat of this unidentified car with an unidentified driver and possibly an unidentified passenger. We have to assume that since she is climbing in the backseat of the car, there's two people up front. But when she opens that back door, the illumination from the inside of the car does not reveal how many people are in that car. Is there one? Is there two? Is there three? And Skylar makes four? You don't know. You can't see that. All you can see is that she climbs into this glow inside the car, closes the door, and the car pulls off. That's it. That's all you know. So Dave turns to Sheila and he says, you picked her up at 11, right, Sheila? And Sheila's like, yeah, I picked her up at 11. Dropped her back off about 11.45. So the reality that they're looking at the unknown is ever apparent. Because 12.31, that's 45 minutes after Sheila says that she dropped Skylar off. So whose car was that? Who was it? You know, we know. Don't, don't, let's not mix reality now with reality then. We know who it was. But as they're looking at it, they don't realize it. They don't see it. Mary and Dave just have to watch their daughter disappear into the night. That is the last time that they know of anyone close to them seeing Skylar leave. What happened to their daughter? That is your, you know, that's a parent's worst fear to watch their child go through something and not be able to fix it or to stop it or to help them or to whatever. We, you sitting there helplessly watching your child disappear is the ultimate torture of anybody who is a parent. So Sheila reiterates to Mary, Dave, the police officer, and Tara. She says that 11 p.m., Skylar snuck out of the house to go joyriding with her and Rachel. At 11.45, Rachel and Sheila drop Skylar off at the end of Crawford Avenue and University Avenue. That is about four blocks away from this complex. So e even if this was true at 11.45 p.m., Skylar would have to walk four blocks. It's not the most heavily trafficked area. Most people who are up and down that street live very close and relative to the street. It's not well lit. It's what you expect in a tiny town. There's nothing to it. And Skylar walked in Sheila's story. Skylar walked back four blocks by herself. So what could happen between 11.45 and 12.30? No one knows. But they do know at 12.31, Skylar is running away from the apartment again. But you never, they go back in the footage and you never see Skylar leave 
at 11 p.m. that night. You never see her come home at 11.45. There is no sign of Skylar until 12.31 July 6th. That's the last time. Now, at this time, Sheila, she starts texting several teenagers that she knows that Skylar's missing. And one of those people are her cousin, Shayna. Now, Shayna's newly friends with Skylar, but remember, she was with Skylar and Sheila at the movie theaters when they got into their big fight over who Sheila was texting, and Skylar ends up punching her in the face. But nevertheless, Shayna's worried, and she's out of town. She's on vacation with her family, but she is itching to get back to Star City, to Morgantown, to help find her friend. In her mind, she keeps going back to this last conversation she had with Skylar. And Skylar was telling Shayna, you know, I, she was feeling left out with her so-called friends, Sheila and Rachel. She feels like nobody really wanted to set up any time to hang out with her. Skylar is going through what every teenage person goes through. There's this vein of depression because they're feeling left out. And Skylar was there in this moment. And looking back... She had something to be worried about because Sheila and Rachel were hanging out without her behind her back. They were plotting against her. It wasn't something that she was making up inside of her mind. This was really happening. But nobody really heard it when she said it out loud because, you know, we all from time to time feel like we are left out, even as adults. We get that way. But Shayna's not the only person who looks back and she and they realize something's wrong. Many teens, when they look back on this situation and they remember Sheila texting them and letting them know that Skylar's missing, they will recall Sheila being very nonchalant about saying Skylar's missing. Like, you know, I went to the park today. Skylar's missing. I had this for dinner. She just, it was much like she was telling them a mundane part of her day, okay? So there wasn't any, like, selling of it. And why would she? Why would she sell it? She knows why Skylar is missing, but in her mind, it doesn't click that she has to put this show on. She didn't have to act distraught, you know, because she's happy Skylar's gone. Now, as Mary and Dave and Tara and Sheila and the police officers, and they, they're becoming frantic and trying to figure out what's going on with Skylar and where she's missing and where she ran off to, Rachel is out on Cheat Lake, which is very close to the town with her mother, Sunning. Patricia got up that morning. She had plans to go to the lake with one of her friends. And generally, Rachel stays behind for things like this. But that morning, that day in particular, Rachel wanted to go with her mom. Now, this is less than 24 hours since she had plunged a knife into her best friend. And I can't help but think that Rachel's conscience is, is starting to get the best of her. She's starting to feel guilty. And she's hoping that if she goes with her mom and her mom's friend to the lake, she'll kind of forget about it. If she keeps herself busy then she can't get lost inside of her own mind and talk about what happened with Skylar. While they're out on the boat, 
Patricia remembers seeing on Rachel's ankle a three-inch gash on the right side, on her right ankle. And she asked Rachel, what happened to your leg? And Rachel's like, oh, I, I must have cut it on the boat motor when I was climbing and getting in the boat. And Patricia, she remembers this cut was angry. It was very red. It was very tender. It was very fresh. And she just, she blows it off. She takes Rachel at her word and she says, well, you know, pay attention to what you're doing next time. That doesn't look good. And Rachel's like, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll watch where I'm going next time. On July 7th of 2012, Rachel leaves town. She is going out for another two weeks to church camp. And it's very convenient for her that she is not back having to deal with all of the activity that is building with each day that Skylar is gone. Had she have been there for that time, I strongly believe that the police and the nieces would know quicker about what happened to Skylar. But because Rachel was able to leave and her mind was preoccupied with camp activities, and I, I want to say at this point she's a counselor or she's like a, what's the step under a counselor? She's an aide at camp. So therefore she's constantly, you know, I've got to keep my group doing this and there's nothing there letting her get lost inside of her own thoughts. There's nothing there that is letting her get lost inside of the flashbacks. And Sheila, she's the one that should be left behind because she is the one that can deal with it. Rachel, Rachel was raised differently. She's wired differently. You know, she... She knows right from wrong. Not that Sheila doesn't. Sheila does know right from wrong. What Sheila lacks is the ability to feel guilty. But Rachel, that's strong in that one. So for her to not be there for two weeks, she doesn't have to deal with it, which means she's not going to break under pressure. Now, don't get me wrong. Sheila, she's much like other people who murder she wants to insert herself into the middle of things. And there, there are times where Sheila acts like a friend who, who has lost her best friend. There are moments when that, that film of, you know, psychopath or sociopath or whatever you want to call it, whatever you want to label her, there is a moment where all of that comes down and she is nothing but a 16-year-old girl. And she feels the feelings that she should be feeling. At this point, flyers are being printed and handed out. They have Skylar's face on it and it says missing. And they're looking for any information that can lead to the whereabouts of where Skylar's niece is. And everybody wants Skylar found. Everybody who has a hand in on this wants Skylar found. Everybody except for Sheila Eddy and Rachel Schoaf. They don't. But everybody else, they know Skylar. They want her to come home. And Sheila, she puts up a good front saying she wants her to come home, but she knows she's not. As the nieces go into the weekend, there was like a parade of Skylar's friends that had come into the niece's apartment and, you know, offered their condolences or offered to help in any searching 
or just to tell them it was going to be okay that Skylar would be found. Mary and Dave, they're just numb to this whole thing. They are grieving parents. They are stressed beyond any limit that one human should ever have. They cannot tell you what color eyes any of those children had that paraded inside their home and, and tried to console Skylar's parents. Because it's just a blur. They are just trying to remember to take a breath and to blink their eyes and to do all those things that we do automatically. They are so hyper-focused on that that they've got to remember, I need to take a breath. Oh gosh, I need to blink my eyes. You know, because they are so lost inside themselves. Their only daughter, their only child is gone. It said that Sheila and Rachel remained emotionless, but with Rachel being out of town, it's really hard to say she was emotionless as much as she was busy. And at first, neither one of them show very much concern as to whether Skylar's ever found or not. She, they could care less. Now, Sheila and her mother, they continue to help the nieces walking through the neighborhood, and then they walk through this thing that's called the rail trail. And it was a railroad track system that had gone through the town of Star City. But by this point, it was non-operational and it had been converted into a hiking trail. And so they kind of walked through this and this ran just alongside of the river. And it's reported that this, you know, is when Sheila finally shows emotion. However... We're going to call them crocodile tears because I do not believe that in this particular time, Sheila is being genuine. There's no way of knowing, and I can only speculate, I mean, but I'm going to sit here and I'm going to tell you, the more I research Sheila Eddy, the more I'm fairly confident that she lacks the capacity to feel remorseful or guilty. I don't think that's there for her unless it gets her what she wants and then she knows how to recreate those emotions so in this moment when i started hearing that this was the first time that sheila broke down and actually cried i called bullshit i think that she's most like what a young child is when they do not grasp how bad they messed up until their child until they're being reprimanded i think that's where sheila's at in that mindset. Um, I don't think she's in the same mindset as her mother or as Mary or as Shayna or as Daniel or as any other friend of Skylar's is at that point. I think that she realizes that, you know, everybody else around her is showing emotion and she's the only one that's not. And that doesn't look natural because, you know, she's supposed to be my best friend. So conjure up some of my crocodile tears and get away with it. Nope. Now, there is a time where Sheila goes back to the niece's home and she talks to Mary and she asks if she can go sit in Skylar's room. And Mary lets her. And Mary lets her do this alone. And I don't think anything of it. At the time, Mary thought of Sheila as, as another child. And Sheila was dealing with the loss of her friend. They couldn't find her. They didn't know what was going on. 
But I think the moment that Sheila was able to go into Skylar's bedroom, that she genuinely had her very first breakdown and started to grieve her friend. And I say grieve because everybody else in the community thinks of Skylar as missing, but not as dead. But Sheila and Rachel, they both know that she is dead at this point. She's not coming home. She's not a missing person. She has been murdered. But in this moment, I think Sheila breaks down and genuinely is grieving her friend. Skylar will never walk back into that bedroom. Skylar will never move another object in that bedroom. And I think that that's when it hits Sheila, the finality of killing her best friend. And she, she breaks down and she cries and she's gasping for breath and Mary comes in there and she tries to rub Sheila's back and let her know, you know, it's going to be okay. Just you, you do what you need to and we'll get, we'll pick it up and we'll do this. But what Mary doesn't know is Sheila knows Skylar isn't coming home. Sheila knows that Mary is never going to hear her daughter say, I love you. Sheila knows she's the one that took all of it away. And her friend is gone. The friend that she had been friends with since second grade was gone. And I think that it is just a natural process to grieve. And that's where Sheila was. Now, you're probably sitting there going, how can I say one, one event was complete and total fake and the other event event is truthful or or you know plausible or whatever you want to call it the reason i think this is because when sheila walked into that bedroom she was alone when sheila started to break down and cry she was alone when sheila was out walking the rail trail with her mother and mary there were people watching her so for for her to have two different outbursts allows me to see this from two different points of view. Had Sheila gone in that bedroom and never cracked a tear, then yeah, no, I'd probably call BS and or whatever. We could have laid claim to the very first interpretation I have. But because she was in this bedroom alone and she was allowed to look around and realize, you know, I know Skylar's not coming back here. I think that's why I believe she was genuine in grieving for her friend instead of putting on some front because the tears happened before in front of people and this was her way of connecting with Skylar by herself. But, you know, that's fine. If you think I'm different, that's great. Let's talk about it. Put it in the comments. Let's talk about it. Shoot me a message. I want to be pushed out and I want to see this from others' points of view. So, if you are seeing this differently, let me know. That's fine. Sheila not only decides that outwardly she needs to appear sad, scared, and confused by Skylar's disappointment, by Skylar's disappearance, but this outward appearance was starting to become tiring and she slips up from it. She slips up from this mask that she's had on the entire time that Skylar's been known to be missing. And at 11.45 one night, she tweets, 
quote, tired of losing sleep over this. Even though this tweet is obscure and it doesn't really mean anything, it's what's being read between the lines. She's not as shady as she thinks she is. At the time, she's, I didn't say anybody's name. I didn't, you know, tag anybody in their Twitter handler. You know, nobody knows what I'm talking about. Hindsight, though, we know exactly what she's talking about. Regardless of whether or not there was a name mentioned, we know. At this point, Jessica Colbank has been given the Skylar Niece case, and she has gone over it, and now she is sitting down with Sheila to take down her story of events that happened that night. But it wasn't long into the statement that Colbank knew that Sheila's hiding something. She couldn't quite put her finger on what it is she's hiding, but she knows that Sheila is not being 100% truthful. Now, thankfully, when McCauley, he was the officer that responded to the 911 call from Mary and Dave on July 6th, he filed paperwork that day after the 911 call for the phone company that Skylar had her cell phone uh, planned through to have access to her phone records. So that by the time Officer Colbank, she has her hands on the, on the file, she is sifting through Skylar's phone records. And the thing that stands out is just before midnight on July 5th, Skylar called Sheila six times. And the last phone call she received was from Rachel. Now, if they had gone out and Joy Road and, you know, did whatever it is they claim to do, why is it that just before midnight, Skylar is calling Sheila six times, and then Rachel is the one to call her last. Mm, two and two are not equaling four here, guys. Now, Chief Probst of the Star City Police Department, he has gotten with the state officials to try and issue what's called an Amber Alert. Many of you should know, especially if you're a true crime junkie, we know what Amber Alert is. And at this time in 2012, the only way an Amber Alert could be issued is if the child had been abducted and you have a perpetrator and you have description. In this case, initially, Skylar was thought to be a runaway. And they don't issue Amber Alerts for runaways. Things could have been different had an Amber Alert been issued. But we know it would have led to any great reconnecting of families. This would have been bad. But had this happened to another child, it could save them. And we're going to talk about Skylar's Law more next week. Um, unfortunately, I cannot close this podcast up in two. I tried because I have some super exciting news coming your way this week and just in time for Thanksgiving. But I just, I'm not going to skimp out on the research and the facts and the story just to wrap something up. I want to bring you something that I'm proud of. So this turned into a three-part series. Surprise! Um, so next week we'll get more into what is known as Skylar's Law. But at this time, Chief Probst is denied several times that he cannot issue an Amber Alert for Skylar Niece. She's a runaway. She has not been abducted. Dave and Mary, they never once think that Skylar, that she ran away. 
they knew their daughter was missing, but she did not do that voluntarily. How do they know she never ran away? Well, she left some stuff behind in her bedroom that had Skylar decided to run away, she would not have left at home. These items meant that Skylar planned to have come back home to her bedroom and back to these things. The first item is her contact lens case. Skylar needed prescription glasses, and at some point, Mary and Dave got her contact lenses so that she did not have to wear glasses all the time. They were precious to her. Obviously, it's about her appearance. So Skylar would not have left without the case. She would not have left without the lens solution. Skylar would not have left behind the charger to her track phone. What teenage person leaves for longer than an overnight visit and leaves their, far, their phone charger at home? None of them. Most of them don't make it outside the house for more than four hours without a phone charger in hand. One of the most important things is her little dog, Lulu. Lulu is this cute little white Maltese looking little dog. And Skylar had begged her parents for this little dog. She took care of it. She, it, you know, if Skylar was home, Lulu was with her. Lulu was what Skylar would classify as her true best friend in life. But the most important thing she was she had left behind that she would not have is what's called goody. Now she calls this thing goody, and I say it's a thing because it really is. It is a scrap piece of cloth that was cut away from one of Mary's nightgowns when Skylar was a toddler. So it's just a security piece of fabric. But to Skylar, even at 16, she needed that because Skylar suffered from menstrual cramps. Uh, she had th that very first day of her being on her period. Skylar was curled up in a ball in her bed and in pain and clenching to this piece of material, what they called guinea. And had Skylar decided she was never going to come home again and she was running away and this was for good, Goody would have went with her along with Lulu. So, I mean, as parents, you're supposed to know your children at the very best that you can. And Dave and Mary knew Skylar at the very best that she was. They knew she wouldn't leave with home without contact stuff. They knew she wouldn't leave her charger at home, nor her dog or this security piece of fabric. They knew that their daughter had intended to come home. And everybody else around them told them Skylar had ran away. They knew. Not only did McCullough file for Skylar's phone or phone records, he also filed Skylar's name in with FBI's National Crime Information Center database on July 6th. Now, this database allows facilities across the country to share information. This allows it allows Star City to facilitate any ongoing information in the investigation to Skylar Niece missing with any agency out there. But that also means the FBI has access and they end up calling Star City Police Department and offering their assistance. Because guess what? The FBI is not seeing Skylar Niece as a runaway either.
there's something there that is pointing them to believe that Skyler was abducted and they just don't know it yet. Now the FBI, they, they believe Skyler wasn't a runaway because they had a case that was just south of Morgantown where a three-year-old girl vanished from her home in 2011, just a year before Skyler. And investigators were afraid that they had a serial killer on their hands. Now, this trail would have worked in Sheila and Rachel's defense had there been any, just an ounce of validity to it, but none of the evidence suggested that Skylar disappeared under the same circumstances as this little three-year-old child. Now, as law enforcement, they start balking up on their information, all of them eventually start seeing Skylar as a missing person and not, in fact, as a runaway, like initially had been thought. But missing teens go every day where they're missing 24 hours, 48 hours, and they just turn out to be a person that, or one that had ran away to go party with their friends or whatever. But for every day that Skylar has been missing, the chances of her coming home alive diminish greatly. We know this. This is not some fact you picked off of your true crime or off of any crime related television show. There is validity to that statement. For every day that the child is missing, the chances of them being found alive diminish. It's sad but true. Now, as the police are starting to do their own investigations, so is Sheila. Sheila, our girl who loved to binge watch SVU, Law and Order, CSI, you name it. She thought she had watched enough of it that she'd get away with a perfect crime. Boy, was she wrong. But she began asking, Mary and Dave, ha have y'all heard anything? Um, has anything been said to y'all? Does the police know anything? What's going on with Skyler? You know, these questions were repeated to the nieces by Sheila. And they genuinely thought she was a concerned friend. But like every true psychopath out there, sociopath, she was inserting herself right into the middle of the investigation. That way she could be one step ahead of the investigators. But had she watched or had she paid enough attention to all these crime shows that she was watching, she would know that they would catch on to her inserting herself like she is. And guess what? Jessica Colbank does. When she learns of Sheila's quote-unquote interrogations, she cautions Mary and Dave about talking with Sheila regarding the investigation. And Mary and Dave at first are like, why? Well, she's just asking you know, what's going on with her friend. Officer Colbank tells them that her intentions may not be what they appear to be. And with that grain of advice, because in all honesty, there's very little that Colbank can share with the nieces as this is an ongoing investigation. Um, they have to follow every lead that comes in, every sighting. They have to, they have to do it all. And it's very 
frustrating for parents because they can't get the 100%. Like, what are you doing? Write it down word for word in layman's terms. What are you doing to help find my child? They can't do that. But Colbank does offer them that tidbit of information. And with that, Mary has just enough to be concerned what she thought about who she considered her daughter's best friend, Sheila. Why was Colbank suddenly suspicious of Sheila? Mary wanted to know. And it's funny how tables have flipped at this point because in the beginning, Dave was so frantic. He was so anxiety-driven. He knew something was wrong. He knew his daughter was missing and Mary tried to blow it off. And now Mary is the one that is starting to suspect Sheila very early on into Skylar missing, where Dave is just still trying to hold on to the fact that, no, she's, you know, she's, she's just concerned. She's just worried about her best friend. Mary's like, no, I don't think that's how that works, Dave. On July 9th of 2012, Colbank first gets to sit down and really have an interview with Sheila. She's sat down with her and they've talked over the story of what happened that night between Sheila, Rachel, and Skylar. This is her first authentic interview. And we're going to go through the transcript here real quick. Colbank asks, quote, do you know what Skylar meant when she tweeted, you doing shit like this is why I will never completely trust you? And Sheila says, no. Colbank asks her, do you know who she was tweeting? Sheila says, no, not really. Colbank asks, what about her last tweet? All I do is hope. Sheila says, probably some boy. Now, at this point in time, we can see that Sheila is very dry in her responses. She's never giving too many words. She's very, you know, short, clipped, and to the point. In her head, she's probably thinking, the less that I say, the less they will think that I have something to do with this. However, in her endless hours of binging SUV and CSI and Law and & Order, you think she probably should have done things differently and been very open with her responses. Because the more you close down, the more people are like, what are you hiding, right? That, I mean, I would, you would, we all would. I, you know, I ask you an answer and you become one-worded, yeah. Or the most universally hated letter in the world is K. If you're texting somebody and they send you back a K, well, you can guarantee that your blood pressure shoots through the roof and you kind of look like the red guy off of Inside Out where your head just shoots flames. And we and, and the person responding back with the letter K knows what they're doing. You think that Sheila would know the same thing, but she doesn't. And so Colbank asks her, you know, is there any boy in particular? And Sheila says, no. Not that I can think of. She and Eric Finesh were close. And she had this other friend, Floyd Pancoast. But then there was Dylan Conaway. You might ask him. And Colbank says, hey, have you tried to call Skylar? And Sheila says, just makes me so sad to hear her voicemail. 
to hear a voice. I can't call her. Colbank says, why haven't you done more online to try and locate Skylar? Everybody else is trying to put awareness out there. You know, Skylar's missing. Help us find Skylar. Do you know what happened to Skylar? Sheila, radio silent when it becomes, when it comes to that topic. And Sheila responds to, I've been too upset. And Colbank goes off and she says, that's bullshit. And I don't believe you for a second. If that was my friend, I'd be blowing up their Facebook page. I'd be blowing their Twitter account up if I didn't know where they were. You know where she's at, so tell me. And Sheila says, I told you, we dropped her off. Let's note here, just for a second, let's kind of go off for a minute. Let's note that it is very clear that Colbank is going in a particular direction with this investigation. It's not that she dislikes Sheila. It's that she doesn't believe one word that comes out of this girl's mouth. She's kind of like Shelly Notek. If you'll go back and listen to uh, Do As Mother Says, you'll see there that anytime that woman opens her mouth, a lie falls out. Guess what? Sheila is the miniature version of that. Anytime this girl opens her mouth in regards to what happened that night, she lies. And we could even get a little generous here and say pretty much from the moment that she thought she could get away with lying, she started lying and never opened her mouth with an ounce of truth. I don't know. Um, but what I do know is Sheila thinks she can get away with it. So somewhere along the way, Sheila started to lie and notice they're believing me, which means I can lie about whatever I want to and they'll believe me. And Colbank is like, I don't believe you. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to, I'm not eating that. Feed me something else. So let's just make a point. Colbank is very obvious in the way she feels in this investigation. Now, this is hindsight, right? We're looking back at this case. We're looking back at this investigation. Maybe she act different, but I would go on to say that I doubt it. I doubt she acted any differently in 2012 than what's presented to us in tw 2020. I don't, you know. Colbank, she starts looking at all of Skylar's friends' cars. And the people that she's friends with that own a car are Sheila, Shayna, and this girl named Chrissy. Okay. Now, Neither Shayna or Chrissy's cars resemble the car that was seen in the grainy surveillance footage. However, Sheila drives a silver Camry, and it's very much like the one they saw on screen. It could actually be the one they saw. Colbink ends up watching Sheila as Sheila watches Colbink walk around the car and look at it. So, Sheila, she seems calm. She seems cool. She doesn't even really bat an eyelash to the fact that Colbank is walking around a car. Why? Because they've all looked at this footage. And I guarantee you, as they all saw it the very first time in that tiny little closet that they call security room, I guarantee you Sheila held her breath the entire time. But when nobody realized whose car they were looking at at 1231, the morning of July 6th, Sheila knew, I can get away with this. 
At least that's what she thought. Colby, she begins to go through Sheila's statement with a fine-tooth comb. First thing that is popping up is, why did they drop Skylar nearly four blocks away from her apartment? They pulled up to pick her up. Why couldn't they pull up to drop her off? Now, the story is that Skylar had gotten angry that night after riding around for about 45 minutes together and they were smoking weed. And she insisted that Sheila and Rachel drop her off four blocks away from her apartment. Now, it could be interpreted that maybe she didn't want the headlights to wake her parents. Maybe she didn't want any noise to wake her parents or any neighbors. Them getting into an argument, plausible, because these girls fought like cats and dogs. So, is it plausible? Yeah, it's plausible. The other question that was raised was, Colink found out that Sheila and Rachel were both dressed in shorts and hooded sweatshirts, or hoodies for all of you out there who are hoodie addicts like me. And it said that they all talked about Rachel's boyfriend and Skylar and her money problems and how boring her shift was that night at Wendy's. But then all of a sudden, Skylar weirded out on them. And according to Sheila, and in her second statement, she claims that she and Rachel were only with Skylar for 30 minutes due to Skylar weirding out on them. Okay. Now, conveniently, as Colbank stared at each frame of this grainy black and white footage, Sheila is now retweeting some, some things. She's starting to talk on Twitter. And guess what they're both about? They are both photographs of Skylar's missing flyers. It's got Skylar's face on it. They're asking if you've seen any, if you've seen Skylar, do you know anything that can help us locate Skylar? You know, here's what she looks like. Here's the last thing she was seen wearing. Have you seen her? Sheila's now retweeting these on Twitter. Conveniently, after it was pointed out to her that she had done nothing on her social media to help bring any awareness to Skylar's missing investigation. Sheila couldn't even wait a couple days before she started tweeting what Colbank had pointed out. Mm, teenagers. They missed some of the very basic details in life. It seems at this point that Sheila is starting to campaign for Skylar's safe return. Is, is Sheila's story plausible? Yes. Is it convenient that she started to post about Skylar the same time, that same evening after Colbank pointed out that she was not doing her part on social media? Yeah, it's convenient, but it doesn't mean she's guilty. That's not, you can't fry her on that, okay? It's just convenient. WBOY, one of the local television stations there in Morgantown, they aired Missing Skylar's story. And then a local radio station picks up the story as well. And then the next morning on July 10th of 2012, the Dominion publishes a story about Skylar asking for anyone who may know something to please come forward. So that is three local news entities that have put out there about Skylar and the investigation. The story in the Dominion ends with just four words, quote, just come home, baby. 
After the television and radio and newspaper stories air about Skylar, reports of seeing her start pouring into the police department. Colbank, she's in this rabbit hole on social media. And the one thing that is clear is that as that history goes on, Skylar gets angrier. And Sheila, Skylar, and Rachel, they're almost in a constant online argument, except for when they're not. So we've got Dave and Mary hearing about Skylar being seen in North Carolina and South Carolina and, you know, in Pennsylvania and She's being seen everywhere, okay? You've got Colbank that's trying to decipher teenage language and the arguments that are happening online. And then you've got Sheila who thinks she's doing the absolute best job in the world at hiding the fact that she's guilty. And then Rachel, who's away at camp and she's not even having to deal with this situation yet. But the one thing that really pangs at Colblink and her investigation into the social media is the statement that Skylar tweets. Just know, I know. Colbank wants to know, what is it that you know, Skylar? What is it? And that's the magic question. What does Skylar know that is worth someone taking her life over. You just got to figure out who to ask that question to, right? Colbank ends up calling the camp where Rachel is for the next week, week and a half, and she's hopeful that maybe Skylar and Rachel ended up taking their own little vacation and they had ran off and that you know, camp counselors would come back and be like, well, Rachel never showed up for camp. But to her disappointment, Rachel gets on the phone. And Rachel claims that she didn't even know Skylar was missing, even though the news of Skylar disappearing broke prior to Rachel leaving town. She says that she didn't know. Okay. Rachel tells Colbank that she, you need to call and talk to Sheila. They, you know, Sheila and Skylar were closer than me and Skylar were. And Colbake, she tells Rachel, you know, when you get back in from camp, why don't you stop by the police department and we'll have a chat. But surprise, surprise, Rachel never shows up. Okay, so I just want to stop right here and I want to point something out that really has stuck with me as I dug through this case. In the book, Pretty Little Killers, In the book, Pretty Little Killers by Darlene Berry and Jeffrey C. Fuller, there's this paragraph or so that, that they talk about, um, about a hair salon, a local hair salon and an incident that had occurred there. And generally, I try not to read from one source directly. I try to match the stories up amongst the different resources I'm using, but this was something that just stuck out with me, okay? So I'm going to read it to you, and then we'll talk for just a second over it. Not long after Skylar disappeared, Carol Machad went to the beauty salon to have her hair done. She learned Sheila went there too, and that's when the beautician told Skylar's aunt an odd story. 
Quote, she said she hung one of the missing posters in her shop, but someone had taken it down, Carol said. The shop owner later said she remembered the day she hung it up. It was near the front entrance with, quote, with tape on all four corners so clients would see it as they were leaving, end quote. One day when the owner went to the foyer, uh, the missing poster was just gone. I stood and stared for a full two minutes, she said. She knew the poster had been there earlier and said she was confused about why it was gone. It's not like the poster could have fallen down. Then she remembered Sheila and her mom were there earlier when Sheila had her hair highlighted. Looking back, Carol had to wonder whether Sheila took it down to keep people from connecting the dots to her and Rachel. But the salon owner has another theory. She believes Tara could have removed it, quote, because she didn't want Sheila upset over seeing it there, end quote. Okay, so now we have two theories of what happened that day in that beauty, that beauty salon. We can chew them over or we can choose a side. Many of you may have already gotten a side. I don't know. What I am going to say is it would not surprise me if Sheila had taken the flyer down. It's her way of minimizing the light to Skylar in her case. Skylar being gone was supposed to be the end. That was over. No, I don't want to see her. Don't want to hear about her. She she threatened to tell people about me and Rachel. And if if she told people, that means Rachel wouldn't love me anymore. And that's how I think Sheila thought. Now, the question, the million dollar question is, did, did Sheila remove it or did Tara remove it? And if Tara removed it, I would very much believe that she was doing so trying to help her daughter out as far as not wanting to upset her. Even then, that's a little hard, but Tara had no idea what her daughter had done. So is she trying to protect her child or is Sheila trying to protect herself and Rachel and, and their relationship that they seem to have when nobody is looking? You can interpret this in many different ways. Um, when I read it and why I chose to read it verbatim right here is because this isn't the first time you hear about the missing posters of Skylar going missing around town. I immediately, without thinking or without seeing any further about who speculated who did what, I immediately thought she was taking posters down so that there's no more undue attention on Skylar in this missing case, which means that nobody will suspect Sheila and Rachel of killing her because, you know, they're the last ones to see her alive. And the longer that they are claiming that Skylar's missing, the longer that Sheila and Rachel are going to get away with murder. So, somewhere in the back of her very young, unmatured mind, I think she was going around town and taking posters down when she could get away with that without anybody seeing her. But, those are my two cents. July 13th of 2012. A online alias called 
Pisces Sun posted to WebSleuths. Now, WebSleuths is a website that's much like Reddit. Um, at the time, in 2012, they were a very well-known online discussion site about true crime. Old, new, current, didn't matter. Now we have a plethora of Facebook groups, of Twitter groups, of Instagrams to follow, of Reddit threads to be a part of. We have so much. We have podcasts. We have so much to invoke our true crime desire to learn that it's uncanny. And now back then, they had very little. And Web Sleuth was a place. And Pisces son, she posted, quote, me and my husband drove through Star City on our way to the store just now. I'm shocked that there aren't any missing posters for this girl up anywhere on the main drag. Haven't heard anyone mention it around town either. End quote. This was, again, another thing that stuck out to me because I tend to pinpoint weird things that are like, why isn't nobody talking about that? And of course, me being me, I chose to hang on to why all of these missing posters are going missing. And why is it that somebody that was just going through Star City but knew of Skylar's disappearance, pointing out the fact that where's all these missing posters, you know? Wouldn't you think that Mary and Dave and Tara and Sheila, if she were doing what she was supposed to be and whatever he thought she was, wouldn't you think they would all notice that there is a lack of presence on the main drag where people driving through Star City could see? Yes, you think, you think that they'd be like, oh, hey, let's put one up over at, you know, the Texaco or, was Texaco even around then? I don't know the Avalon or the Valero or let's get one up down over there on the Walmart. It seems odd to me that somebody outside of Star City noticed this instead of somebody who resides in Star City and knew Skylar and knew of Skylar's current hiatus status. It's a little weird. Now at this point Mary and Dave they're not reaching far out beyond their circle of family and friends. They're just talking to those very close to them and I can't help but wonder if it's because they're not really sure how to approach this any further and they were kind of hoping that law enforcement would help them or maybe even media would help them or if it's a way to close themselves off as a way to protect their mental health. I can't help but wonder if this is, this is not the fact that they're not wanting to find their daughter. They are wanting to find their daughter. This is something to protect themselves. Now, when Skylar's case goes national on television and they start talking about whether or not Skylar's missing, uh, what's going on with this case, it's been far too long, the nieces are asked to come on and talk about Skylar and what they think could possibly go, be going on at this time. And it ends up that Dave becomes the face for his missing daughter. And that's because Mary, she just, she's at a point that she can't bear to even 
say Schuyler's name, let alone tell the same story over and over and over for each different affiliate. Anytime she would even try to say something or try to add to the interview, she would end up breaking down and crying like any mother would. You know, the husbands have this thing rooted in their mind where they need to be the strong one. And since Mary couldn't talk about it, Dave felt it was his place to step up and hold it together and talk with media about his daughter and her missing and hoping that somebody out there somewhere is watching the three-minute clip of them pleading to for their daughter's safe return that I saw her and they're like, oh, hey, let's call this hotline and be like, Skylar, you're sitting right here with us, you know? So Dave had to put that face on while Mary couldn't hold it together. In July... On July 15th of 2012, Mary and her sister Carol, they start to realize that it is nine days since Skylar has gone missing. And the women don't believe that Skylar is alive. Mary says that her baby girl is dead. And with each day that passed, she knew it. In her heart, she would know it more and more with each day. On July 16, 2012, the Blacksville branch at the Huntington National Bank is robbed for the second time. Now, why am I talking about a bank robbery? Well, at first, investigators think that maybe Skyler knows something about the person who robbed the bank or new information about the first time the bank was robbed. They think she's tied to this bank robbery in some form or fashion. In the end, she's not. They figure that out very quickly. However, it does bring on West Virginia State Police Department, in particular Corporal Ronnie Gaskins and Senior Trooper Chris Berry. They, they end up in the investigation into what happened to Skylar and her disappearance. And with their help, Star City Police is able to go a little bit further. On July 19th, 2012, Cole Bank sets out to interview Rachel for the very first time. Rachel has been home. She just got home from camp, and it's been about two weeks since she had talked to her on the phone while she was at camp. And when Colbeck and her partner pull up to the show home, they notice that there's a neighbor. And they're kind of watching the neighbor watch them. And when they get out of their cruiser, the neighbor comes around and she asks, you know, what, what are you doing here? And Colbeck says that they're here to talk to Rachel. And they need to talk to her. You know, they know she's home from camp. They like to talk about her, talk to her about the disappearance of Skylar niece. Well, this neighbor gets on the phone because Patricia's not home. She's two hours away. And the short way is Patricia Shove says that Jessica Colbank and her partner can talk to Rachel and about what she may know about Skylar. So they go into the home, thanks to the neighbor letting them in. 
And inside they find Rachel and her boyfriend and another person. Well, Rachel and Colbank, they and her partner, they all go upstairs into the family room that's up there. And they sit down and they talk. And Rachel tells them the story. And I call it the story is because it seems that Rachel and Sheila have the same story word for word. And it's on replay. And so Rachel tells her the story again. The same story that they've heard now from Sheila. I mean, it's even down to the part where Skylar got mad and forced the two to drop her off down on, you know, University Avenue and Crawford Avenue. It is verbatim. Okay, so that's their question about this story. Once she was like, this is what happened. They're like, okay, let's, let's get to talking and I'm going to ask a few questions. At the point where the girls drove, where did y'all drive to? This is where the two stories split. At first, Rachel says that they stayed on Pattinson, okay, and then stayed on the back streets, unnamed roads. But Colbank says that Pattinson has security cameras, and they can go back and they'll they'll find you know Rachel and. Sheila and Skylar and follow them in the direction that they drove and when they came back. And then Rachel shuts down and she says, well, I don't know for sure. I wasn't driving. You need to talk to Sheila. Rachel has developed this. If I don't have to talk about it, I don't have to deal with it. It doesn't mean it's true. But when Rachel has to deal with it, that's when that guilty part of her conscience starts to eat away at her. And she doesn't like that feeling. The one thing that is clear out, the, out of this very initial interview with Rachel is that she has the desire to say the right thing. And she wants to say the thing they know. But either out of fear of Sheila or fear of the consequences, if her tongue was to speak what she wanted it to speak, she doesn't say what happened the morning of July 6th. Even though you can see, it's very clear, Rachel has this desire to tell you what happened, the right thing that happened. But something is there holding her back. On July 28th of 2012, Sheila is sent off to visit some family in Florida. And she gets there and she starts to you know, spend time with her family. And she's separated from what's going on right there in Star City and the investigation with Skylar, which means she can't ask her covenant, what's going on? What do y'all know? Have you heard anything? What do the police know? Where's Skylar? Have you, you know, Sheila can't sit there and insert her, the, herself into the middle of it. So what can she do? She sends her cousin Shayna. And Shayna and her grandmother, they've been going over to the nieces and, you know, sitting with them or helping them around the house or helping them with the search. Just doing whatever it is Mary and Dave need help doing at that particular time. So Shayna is currently at the nieces and Sheila is blowing her phone up asking questions. And Mary, eventually she cracks because she gets tired of seeing Shayna on her phone more than she is paying attention to what they're talking about. And she says something. She says, 
what are you doing with your phone? Why do you keep looking at your phone like that? What's going on? And Shayna says, she was, she, she's texting me and she's wanting to know, have we heard anything or what we know about the investigation? And Mary scoffs. This is the first time Mary slips, not necessarily slips. This is the first time Mary displays her, she displays her suspicions about Sheila and Sheila's intentions. And Shayna, she can't quite understand why Mary is upset with Sheila. And Sheila, she's like, Sheila's just a friend. She's just worried. And Mary's like, yeah, I bet she is. And Shayna doesn't get it. She doesn't understand. And, sh and Shayna, she tells Sheila and then she shuts down the line of communication with Sheila. And that's when Sheila blows up Shayna's phone with texts and calls and texts and calls. And Shayna picks up the phone eventually and, and Sheila, you know, she tells her Sheila, she's like, hey, look, Mary doesn't believe you. And Sheila freaks out. She starts crying and she keeps saying, Mary has to believe me. She has to believe me. It's what happened. She has to believe me. And eventually Mary gets on the phone with Sheila and Sheila, you know, is trying to tell her, that's what happened. Why aren't you believing? What, you know, why would you not believe me? And Mary tells us straight up, I know you're lying, Sheila. I've known you long enough to know that when you are telling me a story and when you are telling me the truth. And she says, if you were in my position, would you believe me? Would you believe yourself? And Sheila says, no, plain and simple. August 6th, 2012, one month at this point that Skylar has been gone and nobody knows. Her friend Daniel has made a promise to himself, um, come hell or high water, he's going to figure out what happened to her. And Daniel says he remembers small things. And it's kind of things that at one point he may brush off with the fact that girls are catty and girls fight a lot and, you know, they spread rumors. But in Daniel's mind, they're starting to turn in the right direction. And Daniel's getting to a point where he can't quite put his finger on it yet, but he knows something. He knows something. He's one of the many who are starting to question Sheila and Rachel's story and the validity that it holds. Is it truthful? Are they telling the truth? Rumors are starting to fly about what happened to Skylar. Skylar, she went off and she she's partying. And when she gets done, she'll come home. Or Skylar's run off with some boy. Or Skylar hooked up with somebody on the internet who turned out to be a predator. Or Skylar was abducted by a pedophile. How about Skylar went to a party, got drunk, fell, hit her head. Skylar overdosed. Skylar is hooked on the hard stuff and running around with all the wrong people. But the one that seems to catch traction is this one. Sheila and Rachel are lying. The stories from both girls are exactly the same, verbatim, until Rachel's deviates just enough. Sheila posts to the Facebook group Team Skylar with a heart, and it's a photo of Sheila and Skylar together, 
And Sheila tags it with this caption, want my best friend back. And then it shows a broken heart emoji kind of thing. But it's back when you use the greater than or equal than symbols and the backslash and the number three. And David, he comments on this and he says, love you, Sheila. I want her back too. And Sheila comments back to Dave. It's hard, but I'm trying. Love you. Now, Mary, she's very vocal with her suspicions. And Dave, he's just trying to support those close to Skylar. Because that's what Skylar would want him to do. That's what Skylar used to berate him over. And Mary, she knows something's going down and they did something to her daughter and they're going to, and she's going to figure it out. On August 10th of 2016, Sheila posts again, quote, all I want is for my best friend to come home. I wish I knew something to give the police a lead or so she can come home, but I don't know anything. I wish I knew something like everybody thinks I do. Come home, Skylar. It's been five weeks too long. I miss you and love you. Before long, the place to vent and argue about what's going on with Skylar's investigation is on this Team Skylar page with the heart emoji. And at some point, it's family who created the page. And eventually Mary and Dave were added on as administrators. But at some point, those two family members that created this page remove Mary and Dave as administrators. Why? Because Mary and Dave are trying to censor the group. They only want productive things posted, not people bickering back and forth with one another over what they think has happened. They want to know what happened to their daughter. Well, they're booted as administrators. And as time goes on, like it would with any couple, it starts to tear away at Mary and Dave and their relationship. And then having this Facebook catty arguing crap that Dave and Mary are not accustomed to because prior to their daughter disappearing, they didn't have a phone. They didn't have a cell phone. They didn't use social media. It's very apparent by what Skylar posted prior to her death that her parents had no idea how to get online and find it. She was using language that if my 16-year-old daughter had been using language like that on the internet, she wouldn't have an account anymore. So it's very apparent that Mary and Dave are new to all of this, and they're new to what can happen with people who get behind a keyboard and a screen and can type away their feelings without actually having to partake in confrontation. And for those two family members that remove them from the administrators on this page, shame on you. This page was created to help find their daughter. That's what you had intended. And instead, you felt that censoring these caddy-like arguments was unfounded. No. Mm-mm. At this point, Mary and Dave, they're working on very little sleep. They're dealing with all of the stress of their daughter being missing. They're dealing with all of the stress of the investigation. They're dealing with all the stress that has come to light from the stupid Facebook page. They are at their wit's end. And 
they're not even talking to each other anymore because they don't want Skylar to come through that door and see Mary and Dave just going at it, at each other, placing blame on the other one. They don't want to see that. So they don't talk. They don't say anything to each other. With Mary and Dave, neither one of them getting any sleep and dealing with the amount of stress that they are dealing with, it's a deadly combination. And if they didn't get relief for one or both of those items, it was going to get ugly. But luckily, thanks to their doctor, they um, were able to get some sleeping pills and they laid their heads down and finally got a night's restful sleep. The first one they've got since the night of July 5th into the morning of July 6th. And then the next morning on August 16th of 2012, it's the first day of school. And this should have been the first day of Skylar's junior year. Instead, Mary is not going to go wake her daughter up to get her ready for school. She goes and she stares at the empty bed, the bed that has been empty since July 6th. Most everyone at University High School knew Skylar had been missing since July. Her name was being whispered in the halls. It's being whispered in the classrooms. And as Sheila and Rachel passed them, people are whispering about them. And it didn't help that Sheila and Rachel were containing to only themselves. They were only talking to each other. They were not talking to other classmates that they had once in the in you know, the, the prior year, their sophomore year. Now, they're only sticking to each other. They got to make sure that they stay strong and become a united front against all of these other high school students. Daniel, he woke up that morning and he got dressed in an outfit that he knew that if Skylar would have saw him, she would have made fun of him for. And he got on bus 257 and he kept the seat next to him free. He waited for Skylar to get on the bus. She didn't get on the bus. He was dropped off at the back of the school where the buses load unloaded each morning. And he walked into the school. And he stood there and he waited to see Skylar. He never saw her. What he did see is Sheila and Rachel being overly close to one another, making sure they were the only two that could hear the conversation that they were having. Daniel walks to his very first class as the bell rings out, signaling the start of a new school year, but it also signaled that Skylar didn't show up for school that day. For Daniel, this was the finality in his belief that Skylar was going to come home. Skylar loved school. She would have never missed the very first day of school. And when he sat down at his desk in first period, he knew his friend was not coming home. By third period, the class began and the teacher started calling roll. Skylar Niece, his voice echoed out through the painfully quiet classroom. And then he says, the year's first absent. And a small voice breaks and she tells him, Skylar's not absent, she's missing. He had no idea. This teacher had no idea one of his students was actively missing. And it was just a mishap. It was, it, he didn't mean any harm by what he said. But for those kids in that classroom, 
they knew Skylar was supposed to be in that classroom. And when they heard her name be called out, it was just another reminder that Skylar wasn't there that day. Now, Daniel, he had drama class with Rachel. And this was the only class that Rachel and Sheila did not have together. And in this class, Daniel could talk to Rachel without Sheila about everything that was going on. And the story that Rachel told about them dropping Skylar off after a four, you know, a short 45-minute joyride didn't seem plausible to Daniel. The two kind of went back bickering over, you know, Rachel's story and what Daniel felt that Rachel was lying and this, that, and the other. And by the end of the class period, Daniel was stopped by the teacher and he said, you know, you, you can't accuse Rachel of something that you have no proof of. And proof or not, Daniel knew he was right, but he didn't say anything else. Mary Niece had taken that day off. She could only sit there and know that her daughter, who loved school, who would have never missed the very first day of school, never showed up like they had hoped. They hoped that if Skylar was going to come home, this was the day she was going to come home on. It just never happened. On August 24th of 2012, Jessica Colbank applied for a search warrant to subpoena Sheila's and Rachel's cell phone records. Colbank knew something was off about their story. And the first place she wanted to look was at their phone records. On August 27th of 2012, Mary pulled up to her apartment after dropping Dave off at work and out front was West Virginia State Police cruisers. Mary feared that they were there to deliver bad news. Corporal Gaskins and Trooper Barry were there to talk with Mary and to see if maybe their investigation into the recent bank robberies had anything to do with with Skylar's disappearance. Two hours later, they knew Skylar was not connected to that bank robbery in any way, but they also knew there was no way they were going to let this little girl go missing another day without their help. So they had talked to Mary and were allowed to look through Skylar's room, even though Star City Police Department had already done so prior. And they went through and they found her private journal. And they asked if they could take it with them. Mary agreed. And before the door could close on their cruiser, they had opened that journal up and they were reading it. Why didn't Colbank already have a copy of this? This is not necessarily on her or McCulley. This is just on the department as a whole. Why didn't they already have this? Maybe they did. Maybe it's information I can't find that they already had. But what these two, what Gaskins and Barry knew, they had two possibilities. And this was only the bare bones of the case that they had the possibilities on. One, Skylar was picked up by Sheila, not at 11 like she said she had, but at 12.31 a.m., meaning it was Sheila's car they were looking at in that footage. And the two girls, meaning Sheila and Rachel, they were hiding a lot of important information from the investigators. Or, number two, 
Skyler was picked up at 11 and dropped off at 11, 11.45, like the girls had said, which means they need to know whose car they're looking at in that footage. They, Gaskins and Barry, contact a local company and they ask them if they can look at their surveillance and they want to look at the footage. And this is a company very close to where Skylar lived. So it was highly likely they were going to pick up footage from that company of the car that picked Skylar up at 1231 a.m. And they were going to be able to try and see which direction at least they were headed. So they start going through this company's security footage frame by frame. And they see the car. And what sticks out to Gaskins is their rims. They look awfully familiar. And he also realizes that the car is not just light colored, it's silver. A few frames later, the car is seen going in the direction of the interstate, away from the direction that the girls said they drove. Had this been two days later, Gaskins and Barry would have never got to see this footage, which means this investigation could have ended quite differently. Instead, they made it within the 45-day window in order to look at footage before it was permanently deleted from the servers. This case is about to be broke wide open. The days passed with slow and agony. Two parents watch the calendar change, and the police don't seem to be doing anything. Torn between screaming at each other and screaming at the police, all they can do is wait. Wait at home. Wait outside a home known to sell drugs. Wait for their only daughter to walk through the door. As the new school year starts and the student body is down one classmate, fingers are pointed. Rumors are whispered. Vague social media posts litter the internet, and they all wrap around two names, Sheila Eddy and Rachel Schof. Two girls were supposed to be her best friends, have conjured a story that doesn't match the video evidence. Students are hot on their trail and investigators aren't far behind them. One begins to feel the pressure bearing down on the two girls and their once rehearsed story is starting to break under the enormous weight. One girl will crack and the other is going on as if nothing ever happened that night in a desolate part of Backwoods, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight as we continue our journey deeper into this case. It seems to get darker the further we dive in. Two high school girls are responsible for this. And if one of them have their way, she won't be going down for it. Please go follow me on Facebook and Instagram at the True Crime Librarian. And be on the lookout for some new stuff coming your way this week. As always, I will leave you with one last line. 
There are no secrets that time does not reveal. Much love, the true crime librarian.